Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 26 of Unknown Orbits, The Mathematics of Magic by L. Sprague de Camp and Fletcher Pratt. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. Tonight, we are going to be talking about fantasy, which is a little bit of a stray from our normal focus on science fiction of the golden age. But you're going to find some connections here in our discussion tonight, and in the story in particular that we're going to be looking at. We will also be defining what's the difference between fantasy and science fiction at some point. Trying to. Trying to, certainly. So our story in question was published in a magazine called Unknown, later to become known as Unknown Worlds, in August of 1940. This was a magazine edited by John W. Campbell, who we've talked about in this podcast previously. This story tells the tale of adventurer Harold Shea and his academic friend Chalmers, who discover the secret of moving from one plane of the multiverse to another into realms where magic exists. They choose to travel to the realm of Spencer's Fairy Queen, an epic poem written in 1590. They battle a variety of beasts, evil knights, and sorcerers, and in the end, they triumph before being whisked back to the present day. So this is part of a series that Sprague de Camp and Fletcher Pratt wrote, centering around Harold Shea and his pal, Chalmers. They had a number of different similar adventures in realms of magic. It is the type of fantasy story that, for me personally, I'm not terribly fond of. I don't like it either. I don't like the gimmick that anything that you write can exist in the multiverse somewhere else. In my mind, it's just the author fantasizing that his creations could exist somewhere? I didn't like the story because it has a tone that I don't like in fantasy. The sort of self-indulgent, self-aware tone that a lot of modern fantasy writers... When I say modern, this is written in 1940, and it was a very modern story at the time, written in the, the tone of the time. And to me, when you insert modern tone into a fantasy story. You break the fourth wall and you break that suspension of disbelief that's needed to maintain the almost dreamlike quality of a good fantasy story. Now, having voiced our personal dislike of this particular type of story, these were very popular in their day. DeCamp and Pratt wrote a series of Harold Shea adventures where he traveled to different magical realms with his partner, and they had all kinds of different adventures. And the magazine, Unknown, which it was published in, was not widely popular in terms of newsstand sales at the time, but it became a highly regarded and highly respected magazine, an important magazine in the history of fantasy for the time. So just to give a little background, DeCamp wrote mostly science fiction up to this point. He was a fairly 
well-regarded science fiction writer. He was one of John W. Campbell's stable of writers in the late 30s into the 1940s for Astounding Magazine. Pratt was more of a pulp writer starting all the way back in the 1920s. He wrote a lot of different kind of pulp stories, but mostly fantasy. And then DeCamp, later in his life, transitioned from being mostly a science fiction writer to being mostly a fantasy writer. He's well known for having been the editor of the Conan paperback series in the 1960s. He rewrote some uh, Robert E. Howard stories that were non-fantasy stories into Conan stories to mixed results. Some people liked them, some people didn't. So they were both good writers. Let's say that. Both Pratt and DeCamp were good writers. They were not like some of the writers for Astounding that were smart people who barely wrote. Yeah, They were good writers. DeCamp was a highly analytical person. He worked uh, during World War II as a researcher with Heinlein and Asimov. The difference was he was a uniformed member of the service. He actually was in the Army, I believe. But he always claimed that he would not write a story whose technology he could not believe in and support. So for a fantasy writer, that's kind of interesting because, and we're going to veer off into fantasy, and I don't want to get into that right now, but let's just say that having rules for magic and fantasy is kind of important. So DeCamp was not far off as far as that goes. So am I misremembering, or did they have a little bit of professional friction between the two because the writing styles were so different? Not that I'm aware of. Pratt was much more of a standard fantasy writer. He wrote some later fantasy novels that were fairly well regarded. The Well of the Unicorn is the one that I can remember. I don't recall reading any of his novels. I think I did read some of his novellas or short stories and some anthology. And my recollection was that he was a pretty good fantasy writer, unlike DeCamp. And maybe this is where the element in these stories that you and I don't like came from, from the highly analytical DeCamp. Maybe that's the part of the story that broke that fourth wall, and that came from DeCamp, perhaps, whereas Pratt was much more of a standard fantasy writer who was well able to evoke that magic, that ambiance that you need in a good fantasy story. Now, as long as we're talking about fantasy here, let's stop for a minute, and let's try to define the difference between science fiction and fantasy. So, do you have a definition that would set fantasy apart from science fiction? Not exactly. As I thought about this question, it seemed obvious at first a good way to define the difference is science. But as you take a closer and closer look at the two, it gets fuzzier and there's a lot of overlap. I know fantasy when I see it. I would say that you have to look at it as two concentric circles that cross. So in the fantasy circle, you have clear fantasy stories like the Lord of the Rings or the Conan stories. And then closer to that circle, or maybe even almost in that circle, you have more grounded stuff like Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire, that have very limited amounts of magic in them. But they have dragons. If there's magic, it's definitely fantasy. But there's a lot of fantasy that has no magic. But then you look at the story, the mathematics of magic. There literally is mathematics of magic in the story. They explain and they put mathematical formulas in there to explain exactly how they're able to transport between dimensions and how magic works and all of that sort of thing. So that's interesting. 
you know, it, it wasn't something that really grabbed me. But, you know, you can do that. You can have a fairly detailed magic in your stories and fantasy. You can have highly regulated and restricted rules for your magic in your world building when you make a fantasy world. And actually, that's not a bad idea. So I don't know if we've really clearly defined science fiction previously, but I would say that to me, science fiction, core science fiction is about ideas. It's a literature about ideas and technology and science. But at the fringes, when you move closer in that concentric circle to the center, you've got space opera and other forms of science fiction that the science is a bit fuzzy or non-existent. Let's put it this way. What's the difference between Game of Thrones and Star Wars in terms of magic, in terms of technology? I would argue that Game of Thrones has a more clearly defined magical world than the science in Star Wars. But Star Wars is clearly science fiction. It's in the space opera genre. And we've argued how science fiction has evolved over time. So any definition that covers the whole span of science fiction would have to be pretty broad. In fact, in our arguments, I think I was reduced to saying, instead of saying science, it's more futurism. That's not a bad definition. I think I would add that there has to be an element of almost childlike wonder to some degree in fantasy. Although, you know, Game of Thrones, Song of Fire and Ice, there's not much childlike wonder in those books and in that TV show. It's pretty grim. It's grimdark. Grimdark is deliberately written to have horrible things happen to people and no happy endings. Is that a new genre? No, it's been around since at least the 90s. Um, Is this from the Brothers Grimm? No, no. It's like Grimm Dark. So it's basically nihilistic fantasy where, like I said, terrible things happen to people and there's really not much in the way of a happy ending. So that's our stumbling attempt to try to define fantasy and science fiction. And for the purposes of this discussion, it's kind of important because one of the things we're going to talk about is Unknown, or as it later became known, Unknown Worlds magazine, edited by John W. Campbell. Unknown was born in March of 1939. Now, it's very interesting. The official story from Mr. Campbell, and as is the case when Mr. Campbell is writing the official story, it's half bullshit, I believe, Unreliable. Right. So Campbell claims he was inspired by the story Sinister Barrier, submitted to him by Eric Frank Russell. It didn't fit into Astounding Magazine, and he really liked the story, and he wanted to publish it, so he decided just out of the blue he was going to completely create a fantasy magazine just so he could have a home for this story by Eric Frank Russell. Now, have you read that? I have not. It's 100% science fiction. We've briefly talked about it. When we were talking about Alamagusa and plagiarism, yes, that there was an Edmund Hamilton story that this story was very reminiscent of. People didn't exactly say that Eric Frank Russell plagiarized Sinister Barrier, but they pointed out how very similar it was to a story by Edmund Hamilton. So I believe, this is a hypothesis on my part, that it was a little more business-oriented. His publisher throughout the late 1930s wanted to publish a weird magazine, a la Weird Tales magazine, which was the king of weird magazines 
since the 1920s. And the interesting thing was, at the time, in January of 1939, a few months prior to Unknown being born, the highly esteemed and long-running editor of Weird Tales, Farnsworth Wright, retired. He stepped down as editor of the magazine. And this was a year or two after both Howard Phillips Lovecraft and R. E. Howard had died, who were one of the main contributors to the magazine. So it appeared that Weird Tales might be stumbling a little bit. So this was an opportune time for someone like John W. Campbell, whose magazine paid a little bit higher rates, to snap up some of these highly popular authors from Weird Tales. People like Robert Block, Henry Kuttner, Manly Wade Wellman, Ray Bradbury, C.L. Moore, Edmund Hamilton, very popular. Edmund Hamilton was very popular. And Frank Belcamp Long. So there was all these writers that could have been lured away from Weird Tales at this particular moment in history. So I think it's kind of not coincidental that they decided to go ahead and publish a fantasy magazine right about this time. And many of those writers did wind up writing in Unknown Magazine. To help support this theory, rival publisher Ziff Davis, who published the science fiction magazine Amazing Stories, rushed out a new magazine, Fantastic Adventures, in May of 1939, right after Unknown came out. So you had two big publishing houses that had the same idea at the same time, just as Weird Tales was stumbling a bit, to suddenly decide to get into the fantasy publishing business. I can easily see John W. Campbell wanting to make more of a nice story out of it rather than a complicated business story. Yes, that's very Campbellian, to embellish the actual history and put himself at the center of something that was significant. And of course, he was deserving of most of the credit. Let me give you a little quote. I believe it's from the first issue of Unknown, where Campbell states his philosophy of fantasy here. It has been the quality of the fantasy you have read in the past that has made the very word anathema. Unknown will be to fantasy what astounding has made itself represent to science fiction. It will offer fantasy of a quality so far different from that which has appeared in the past as to change your entire understanding of the term. And surprisingly, it puts him at the center of it. It certainly does, because only the brilliant mind of John W. Campbell can bring you the high-quality fantasy you've been missing all your life. Hallelujah! Did they have the term gatekeeper back then? Because he's doing it. He had a gatekeeper personality, that's for sure. But... To be fair, Campbell backed up his words with his deeds. Unknown Magazine rapidly became well-known for publishing very high-quality fantasy. As I said, a lot of these Weird Tales writers were able to move over, but also a number of his science fiction writers from Astounding wrote a fantasy tale or two. And I'll give you some names here. Let's see. We've got Theodore Sturgeon. He wrote the story It!, it was published in Unknown, which is one of my favorite stories about a muck monster that rises out of a swamp and gains intelligence. Oh, I may have read that. I it's it's it classic. Familiar. It's been re-anthologized a bunch of times. It's a really good story. Jack Williamson, one of his science fiction writers, wrote Darker Than You Think, which was a scientific examination of the werewolf myth. That's highly acclaimed. Fritz Lieber started his Fafred and the Grey Mousers fantasy series in Unknown Magazine. And then Jack Norvell and L. Ron Hubbard 
were regular popular contributors. L. Ron Hubbard was quite popular in the magazine. And as we've talked about before, L. Ron Hubbard came to Astounding in the 1930s as an accomplished pulp writer. He was a very prolific writer who wrote a lot of different pulp fiction and was very helpful in the early days of Astounding to be able to contribute a lot of content. And as I said, he was one of the more popular writers of both Astounding and Unknown. And he wrote anything. I mean, I think he wrote confessionals. Yeah, literally anything. And he was very good. He was very prolific. So Unknown only existed for a little over four years. It folded in October 1943. That was in the middle of World War II. There was a paper shortage that hit right about the same time that increased the cost of paper to the pulp magazines that shook up the industry where quite a few marginal publications didn't survive that period of time. It's kind of like now, think about all the restaurants that have gone under in the last two years because of COVID and then inflation hitting us. It kind of weeds out some of the weaker businesses. And that's what happened at this time, too, in the pulp industry. Weird Tales, as a matter of fact, almost went under at that point due to the fact that they were a fairly marginal publication at that time. And it was in 1943 that Astounding very briefly went to a larger, roughly 8.5 by 11 format. I think it was like three or five issues, and then they dropped back down again. Yeah, it was a fairly turbulent time. So Unknown was almost a vanity project isn't quite the right term. It was one of those things where the timing was just right, and I think John W. Campbell wanted to expand his portfolio. He kept it going probably longer than the market would have demanded to be honest. But in that four years, a lot of really great fantasy was published. And I think if you can give Unknown Worlds credit for anything, it's for, if not inventing, then popularizing the urban fantasy genre. You're going to have to define that for me. So urban fantasy is fantasy that's set in the present day in our world. Oh, okay. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Dresden Files. Heard of it? I do not recall what it is. So the Dresden Files is a very popular series of adventures. Harry Dresden, he's a detective who goes after supernatural enemies. He's kind of like a demon hunter or ghost hunter. He solves cases involving supernatural forces. And it's set in a very urban environment, you know, almost like a Gotham City type of darker environment. Okay. And then, you know, you've got a comic book character like Constantine, who's very similar to Harry Dresden. And there's probably quite a few knockoffs out there in the market, very similar type of stories. But urban fantasy is basically any fantasy story that injects magic into a contemporary setting, which was not widely done prior to 1940. You can find examples of that scattered here and there, but it really did not become a genre and really did not become popular until Unknown Worlds published a number of stories in that vein and helped create a market for it that continued on into the 1950s, which we'll talk about in a later episode. So that's pretty much the story of Unknown Worlds. They were very important. They were very influential on the history of fantasy. They helped keep interest in fantasy alive for a few more years. There were other publications that came along in the late 40s. 
the first collection of Conan stories was republished in hardcover, I believe, starting in 1950 by Gnome Press. So that was an important development in keeping fantasy alive. There were several magazines that came out in the 1950s that published fantasy, and we'll talk about those in another episode. Then, of course, you had the most important development in fantasy in the 1950s was the publication of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Unknown Worlds was an important bridge from the days of Edgar Rice Burroughs and the Edwardian era of fantasy to the 1950s when fantasy really took hold in American culture. Now, you've read far more of his stuff than I have, but would you say H.P. Lovecraft might have had an influence on urban fantasy? Did he not specialize in taking an ordinary situation and injecting fantasy horror into it? So that's a complicated question, because when I was talking about Edwardian fantasy, one of the writers in particular that I would have pointed to is Lord Dunsany. Lord Dunsany was a very important writer who was a great stylist. He was directly responsible for influencing a number of writers who later went on to develop the fantasy genre as we know it today. And one of the writers he influenced was H.P. Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft, in his early days of writing in the 1920s, wrote quite a few Dunzanian-type stories that were very much fantasy. But Dunsany fantasy is very ethereal, very light. It's got humor in it, and it's almost fairy tale like in its style. And Lovecraft wrote a takeoff on that style that was maybe just a little bit darker, where he injected that cosmic feel to it that he would develop in his later stories. And then a bunch of his stuff, like The Color Out of Space or Shadow Out of Time, these are stories that were pretty clearly science fiction because they were talking about the technology of alien presence here on Earth. And then some of it was just pure horror. So there may have been only a couple of stories that you could point to and say that were maybe influential, perhaps, on urban fantasy. But his idea of a modern-day story set in a city was the the ancient cobweb alleyways of Rhode Island, you know, where he's in some New England town that almost hasn't changed in 300 years. And that's his present day. It's almost as if it's still in the 1700s. I don't know if you can really call that urban fantasy, I was probably taking off more from adaptations, which would have moved the story more into modern Oh, yeah, times. yeah. A lot of the adaptations of Lovecraft have done that. He was one of these people who thought he belonged in an earlier time. He thought he was born in the wrong century. He literally said that at various points. That reflected in his work. So he was not at all a very modernist writer. He was whatever the term is for the opposite of a modernist writer, Certainly, that was H.P. Lovecraft. I would say that the bigger influence was the pulps themselves. What you had is people taking elements of the detective story, which was ever-present in the pulp magazines, and adding an element of science or fantasy to it and updating it for those magazines. So I think that was a greater influence on the birth of urban fantasy, was taking existing pulp tropes and transplanting him into the science fiction or fantasy realm. Well, that is interesting. But, you know, I think we did not 
thoroughly cover the difference between science fiction and fantasy. I know I mentioned that my definitions end up talking about futurism being different parts of a science fiction story in different eras, but you didn't give me your opinion. Well, it's a difficult thing to do because I think you're right. Your original quote about, I can't define fantasy, but I know it when I see it, as good a uh, definition as anything. So if I had to point to anything, I would say it's a matter of intent. When you sit down to write a fantasy story, your intent is to create a whole world that is to some degree or another dreamlike and you're transporting your reader to a dream world even though that dream world may be extremely grounded and realistic like the song of ice and fire books it's still very very different from our world whereas i think a lot of science fiction is taking our world and never really leaving it it's pulling our world into the future or introducing to our world something new and alien that makes us ask questions about ourselves. So I think it's the difference between science fiction being more centered for the most part in our world or our future world and fantasy being centered in a completely new and different world. I really like the term dreamlike. I never thought to really define fantasy except as not science fiction. But when you say it has this dreamlike quality, that kind of matches what I know of it. Admittedly, not a lot. It also is an answer to a number of stories I've noticed that on one level would be considered fantasy, but there's no dreamlike quality at all of it. Can I give one example? Sure. John Thomas's Cube which I don't have the author here, but we'll talk about it sometime, is a cube appears on a mound of dirt or something, and it's perfect. So the main part of the story is people investigating the perfection of this cube. By the end of it, it's discovered that the cube exists because this four-year-old kid decided to have the most perfectly cube thing ever to exist, and he evoked this out of his imagination the story ends with him saying, I'm bored with that. Now I want the most perfectly round thing in the world. Mm -hmm. So which is that, science fiction or fantasy? With the definitions we've said today, I would say it is more science fiction than fantasy. So we've talked about urban fantasy. Urban fantasy, for instance, would be a story where, I'll give you a, a great example. One of my favorite writers is John Collier. And he wrote a number of urban fantasy type stories where he injected magical items into the real world. John Collier wrote a story called The Bottle Shop, where a man stumbles into a dusty old antique shop that has a lot of bottles on shelves. And the old man tells him, well, here's uh, Helen of Troy in a bottle. She's been captured and put inside this bottle. And he takes the bottle home, he opens it up, and Helen of Troy rolls out on the floor in a bearskin rug. And he makes love to her and, and everything, and it's great. And there's a genie in the bottle. And the genie tricks him into replacing Helen of Troy in the bottle. And the genie and Helen of Troy run off together and live happily ever after. But he winds up being in this bottle, and he's sold to a ship full of sailors. And the last line of the story is, and they open up the bottle on the foredeck, and they were extremely displeased with the result, and they abused him terribly or something like that. But anyway, so it's a story about a genie and a bottle, 
And you could not call that science fiction by any stretch of the imagination. There's nothing science fiction about it at all. But there's nothing dreamlike. But it has a magical element in it. So it's clearly fantasy. But it's not dreamlike. Not really, no. Because Collier wrote in a very modernist kind of a style, which, as I've said before, I hate. But for whatever reason, I like his particular style. Call me inconsistent. But that's a really good example of where you can point to a story and say, well, this is definitely not science fiction. Because there's nothing sciencey about it. There's no technology. There's no puzzle to be solved. It's strictly, here's a genie, you know, and it's it's just accepted that there's a genie. And, you know, it does magical things. And that's how the story works. We're kind of talking in circles here a little bit. Let's go back to the idea of the two concentric circles. I think on the furthest edges of each circle, there are stories that you can point to and you can say that is definitely not fantasy or that is definitely not science fiction or that is definitely science fiction you know anything written by isaac asimov practically you could say well that's definitely science fiction because it's always got some sort of an idea in the middle of it whereas like i said lord dunsany no question that's fantasy but then you get towards the middle where the circles start to cross and that's where it gets a little confusing and that's okay because there's no real requirement to have these hard and fast genres except if you're a publisher of books, which is why these two became so divergent and so distinct in the course of the 1950s and well into the 80s, because publishers were publishing lines of paperback books in these different categories. After a certain point, is there any point in the debate, or are you just being pedantic? There's always going to be overlap stories that could be either one. In the 80s, the science fiction publishers started publishing all those sword and sorcery books. Right. That's as far as I'm going to go in trying to define it. Like we said, I know it when I see it. I know when it's not science fiction. I know when it's not fantasy. So that's good enough for me. I like what I like. Through my adult life, I've enjoyed fantasy more than science fiction. But that's changing now because I've started to read a lot of science fiction. Not surprisingly, I'm reading a lot of space opera, good space opera, real science fiction space opera, not the Star Wars paperbacks or anything like that. So I'm finding stuff that's to my taste in science fiction that satisfies my longing for distant worlds and adventure. I used to be a complete hard science fiction, Hal Clement kind of reader, but over the years I've drifted more and more towards galaxy-style science fiction. And funny that you should mention that, because that's going to be the topic of our next podcast. Oh, excellent. So do you have any more thoughts on fantasy or science fiction? Uh, No, I do not. I do not either. I think I've talked it all out. Well, that's it, folks. That's it for episode 26. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. guys from Milwaukee.